0: I also want to read for us from Mark's Gospel, the 15th chapter, beginning in verse 16. Here again, the Gospel of Christ. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and sped on him, And bowing the knee, they worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would speak your gospel to us today, that we might put our whole trust and hope in Christ Jesus alone, the one who was cursed, so that we might be blessed. This is our prayer in His name. Amen. Every Christmas as a congregation, we sing that familiar Isaac Watts hymn version of Psalm 98, Joy to the World. Uh, That hymn includes the line about Jesus' birth. He came to make His blessings flow for as the curse is found. See, Christmas tells us why Jesus came. He came to turn curse into blessing. But Lent tells us how. How He does that. He turns curse into blessing by bearing the curse Himself. By becoming the curse for us. He is cursed so we can be blessed. He takes our curse so we get His blessing. Adam turned blessing into curse. Jesus turns curse into into blessing. He came to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. And He does so by becoming a curse for us on the cross. That's how Galatians 3 puts it. We read it this evening. Christ redeemed them from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, of course, to understand this curse, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 3 when the curse first falls on man and the creation. On the opening page of the Bible, we find God creating life. A couple pages later, we find our first parents choosing death. Genesis 3 records for us the fall of Adam and his wife into sin. And following their fall, it records the Lord coming to meet them and passing judgment on them. And when the Lord pronounces judgment, He puts His curse on them. He puts His curse on the serpent and on the woman, and on the man. And so in Genesis 3, we really get to eavesdrop on the Lord as He's handing out these curses to these rebellious subjects. But mixed in with these curses are promises of grace. Mixed in with these curses are signs that suggest God's curse will not be His final word over man, but rather there are signs and traces that give us hope that the curse will be reversed. Now this whole chapter, Genesis 3, shows us various aspects of the curse. the, The many facets of the curse. The different aspects of the curse. When we turn to the Gospels, as they record for us the story of Jesus, we see how Jesus dealt with each aspect of the curse. How He endured each aspect of the curse in order to turn it to blessing. Jesus reverses the curse by enduring the curse on our behalf. And so Genesis 3 already points ahead to His work. If you see the curse in its many facets, you can see what Jesus is going to come to do. It's very interesting there in Genesis 3. The first thing Adam and his wife realize after sinning is that they are naked. And they are ashamed. They're ashamed of their nakedness. Back in Genesis 2, they were naked and unashamed, but now there is shame. And so they try to cover their shame with fig leaves, which of course proves to be unsuccessful. You can't hide shame with fig leaves any more than you can cure a, a cancerous tumor by putting a Band-Aid on it. It just doesn't work. See, they experience shame because of their sin. Shame is that deep sense that something is wrong with us and with the world, that the world is somehow out of joint. And, and, and we're twisted and made crooked as well. Shame is that deep sense of alienation. It's that sense of missing glory. It's shame that keeps us from feeling comfortable in our own skin. It's that deep feeling of alienation from God. It's why God often seems so distant from us. It's that deep sense of alienation from others. That sense of aloneness, of being cut off. It's that deep sense of alienation from the self. Why sometimes we don't like ourselves and we're not comfortable with who we are. And it's that deep sense of alienation from the world. Why we have such a hard time finding our place where we fit in. And that's really what the curse is. The curse is exclusion. It's alienation. It's estrangement. It's separation. It's division. Jesus comes to deal with the curse. He comes to deal with our shame and to cover our shame. And we get a preview of this right there at the end of Genesis 3. At the end of the chapter, God gives Adam and his wife skins to wear. Their fig leaves couldn't cover the shame, and so God gives them animal skins. He gives them tunics. But where did those skins come from? An animal must have been sacrificed. The first animal sacrifice in Scripture. Blood must have been shed so they could be robed in those skins. And of course, that points ahead to Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. His blood was shed to cover our sin and our shame. He clothes Himself with our shame in order to cover our sin and our shame. He takes our shame upon Himself. So He can clothe us with Himself. He, in a sense, clothes us with Himself to cover our nakedness. And so Paul says in Romans 13, verse 14, clothe yourselves with Christ. You're naked without Christ. Clothe yourselves with Christ. You're ashamed without Christ. Cover your shame with Christ. Paul says later on in Galatians 3, as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. We've been clothed with Christ, with the garment of Christ, the robe of Christ in baptism. Without Christ, you're still in your sin and shame. You're still naked. You're uncovered. You are gloryless and shameful. But when Jesus covers you, your shame is covered. You're not exposed anymore. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, He was naked. He was naked, you could say, and unashamed. He died naked in order to clothe us. He took on our shame so we could share in His glory. He was stripped naked so we could be clothed with His glory. The Lord proceeds to pronounce curses of judgment against the serpent, against the woman, and against the man. And it's interesting as these curses deal with each of these three partners in crime, so to speak, how this is really a reversal of the original Hierarchies that God built into the creation. See, originally, as God designed it, you see this in the first two chapters the man was made to be the head of his wife, to be her leader. And together they were to rule over the animals and the rest of creation as God's stewards, as God's caretakers of the creation. But what happens in Genesis 3? That whole order is reversed. Instead, the woman, instead of listening to her husband, she listens to the serpent. And the man, instead of leading his wife, the man follows his wife into sin. And so all these creational hierarchies are reversed. The whole created order has been thrown into chaos. It's been turned upside down. On the first page of the Bible, God creates life. A couple pages into it, our first parents are choosing death. God designed this beautiful order so the man and the woman and the creation could work together in harmony. Just a few pages in to the story, our first parents have thrown it into complete chaos. Disorder has entered God's world. Uncleanness has entered God's world. It's very interesting you know. if you fast forward from Genesis 3 a little bit in the Scripture, not all the way to Jesus, but if you stop off at Moses in the Old Testament, you have the law given through Moses to the people of Israel who will be God's special people, His covenant nation. In the law of Moses, there is a whole system of regulations designed to teach Israel about how sin brings uncleanness. The laws of uncleanness are found in the book of Leviticus. And actually, If you look at the book of Leviticus carefully, you find that it tracks basically with the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And this is especially true with the laws of uncleanness in the book of Leviticus. In fact, the laws of uncleanness in Leviticus 11 through 15 follow the same sequence as Genesis chapter 3, the curses in Genesis chapter 3. So in Leviticus 11, uh, it deals with unclean animals. The unclean animals are the serpent-like animals, who come in direct contact with the ground, who come in direct contact with the dirt. The serpent is the prototype for the unclean animals. Animals without hooves. Uh, This corresponds to the curse on the serpent. He's now going to have to crawl around or slither around on the ground on his belly. He's got to crawl on his belly from now on. And he'll eat dust. He'll eat dirt. He'll basically eat the, the, the ground itself. Now, of course, we know from the rest of Scripture that the serpent here in Genesis 3 was Satan's agent. And so for the serpent to eat dust means he's ultimately going to be humiliated. You see this again and again in Scripture. For example, Psalm 72, verse 9, says that the enemies of God's chosen king will lick the dust. That will ultimately be the fate of the serpent. But there you see that. Leviticus 11 corresponds to the curse on the serpent in Genesis 3. Leviticus 12 corresponds to the curse on the woman, which happens next in Genesis 3. Leviticus 12 deals with the uncleanness of the woman after giving birth to a child. The child has to undergo a purification process. The mother has to undergo a purification process as well. This is an outworking of the curse on the woman. Uh, She's giving birth to a sinner, And so of course she has to go through a purification process. She's brought something unclean into the world. And then Leviticus 13-15 through deal with uncleanness arising from what flows out of a man, especially what flows out through a man's skin. So it especially has to do with leprosy, and, and leprosy there is carefully defined. But what you see there in that part of Leviticus is man is corrupt on the inside, And so what flows out of him, what flows out from his insides, what leaks out of him from his insides, like leprosy poking up through the skin or like sweat mentioned there in the curse on man in Genesis 3, is a form of uncleanness. So that's the order in Genesis 3. An animal that's now unclean, a woman who's going to bring unclean children into the world, a man who's going to be made unclean through his sweat, coming out from inside of him, flowing out from him, from inside of him. That's the order in Genesis 3. That's the order in Leviticus as well. In fact, again, as I said, the whole book of Leviticus really tracks with uh, the early chapters of Genesis. The pattern of the law in Leviticus describes this uncleanness. It follows these curses in Genesis 3. The law builds on these curses and it makes these curses more specific. The laws of uncleanness teach Israel about the curse, about the curses here in Genesis 3. Now, look at what the Lord says to the serpent, the rest of what he says to the serpent in Genesis 3. You know, the serpent is the only one who is cursed directly in Genesis 3, cursed directly by God. He's going to crawl on his belly. We just saw that. So he's now going to be an unclean animal. Originally, he was one of the beasts of the field. He wasn't unclean. So perhaps this serpent had legs of some sort. Uh, Revelation 12 suggests it might have even even been some kind of dragon uh, that appeared to them in the garden. But now he's got to crawl on his belly. He becomes an unclean animal. He's going to eat dust. Again, a sign of his uncleanness. Plus, God says he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. Between his seed and her seed. So just when the serpent thought he had won this great victory... Capturing the allegiance of the man and the woman for himself. God says, no, not so fast. I am going to impose enmity. I'm going to create a war between you and the seed of the woman. And then God gives this promise. He says, while the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's seed, the woman's seed will crush his head. It's spoken to the serpent a word of doom. The serpent knows how it's going to end. His head is going to be crushed. He's going to be defeated and destroyed. This enmity between the man and the woman, or I'm sorry, between the serpent and the woman and and the woman's seed and the seed of the serpent, this enmity, this does a lot more than just explain why we are afraid of snakes, why people in general don't like snakes. This is actually describing the great warfare of history, the great holy war of history running all through the rest of the Scriptures, the rest of history, the antithesis between the people of God and the people of the serpent. See, the serpent is Satan, and his seed are those humans who continue on in unbroken sin, who live in opposition to God, those who rebel against God and against God's Word. Those who are always saying, has God really said? It's like the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. That's why you lie and murder as well. He is saying to the Pharisees, you are the serpent's seed. You're not the offspring of Abraham. You're the offspring of the serpent. The seed of the woman are those who who are at war with Satan and who seek to be loyal to God and to serve God. Uh, ultimately, um, it's, it's, it's usually men who are said to have seed in Scripture. It's usually men who are said to have seed. Here it's the woman who is said to have seed. I think this suggests something miraculous. That somehow, miraculously, this woman will have a seed. Ultimately, of course, the seed of the woman is Christ. Born of the young virgin woman Mary. He is the seed of the woman who comes to fight the serpent and the serpent's seed and who wins the victory. See, how is this part of Genesis 3 fulfilled in Jesus? When Jesus dies on the cross, yes, His heel is bruised. But He's crucified at Golgotha, uh, as Mark's Gospel tells us. Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. So yes, His heel is bruised when He... Dies on the cross. But what is under His feet? The place of the skull. He is crushing Satan's skull under His feet as He dies on the cross. His nail-pierced feet are trampling down the serpent and crushing His head. He is the seed of the woman. He is the serpent crusher. There's this whole theme in the Old Testament of miraculous sons that God raises up that God raises up in order to do battle in some way with the serpent. But they were all provisional. It's final when you get to Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes and crushes the serpent's head. When God speaks to the woman, He tells the woman that there will be great pain in her childbearing and, of course, great pain in childrearing as well. Uh, God says that her trauma will be multiplied by the fall. Uh, her trauma in her family life and bringing children into the world and raising them up. She's also going to have marriage problems. Uh, Genesis 3.16 talks about that as well. That her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule over her. Whatever that means, it means there's going to be friction between the man and the woman. Marital strife has been unleashed into the world through the sin of Adam and his wife. But in the midst of all of this trauma and pain that's been brought into the world, there is also hope spoken to the woman. She will have children. She will give birth to a child who will defeat the serpent. The woman's sorrows in childbirth will not be in vain. They will lead to victory. The woman had sided with the serpent when she listened to his lies, but God will reestablish enmity between her and the serpent and He will give her a son who will be her champion and her deliverer. She will give birth to a Savior. Her decision to listen to the serpent gave birth to sin in the world, but she will also give birth to the Savior. Revelation 12, which really fits with Genesis 3, uh, describes Israel as the woman who will bear the seed. And so Israel's whole history is a long series of birth pains. And labor pains as Israel labors to give birth to this promised seed. And finally, Mary does it. She gives birth to Jesus the Savior. And then look at the curse on the man, on Adam. This is especially relevant because Jesus comes to be a new Adam. And so the curse that falls on the man, especially, would apply to Jesus as the new Adam. God says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. The ground itself is not cursed. The earth is still God's good creation. But the earth is subject to the effects of man's sin. The earth is subject to the effects of the fall. The created order is now fallen. It's not what God originally intended it to be. It's been damaged by the entrance of sin and by the curse of death. And so the creation itself suffers under man's rebellious stewardship. Had man been a good steward? the creation would have always flourished because man was a bad steward and a rebel. Now the creation itself is subjected to suffering. But the language there is interesting. It says the ground is especially cursed in reference to man or with regard to man. See, man was made to live in harmony with the creation, to rule over the creation, but no longer will the creation cooperate. Inasmuch as man aligns himself against God, the creation is still on God's side. And so the creation is not going to cooperate with man now that man is a rebel in God's world. Instead, the creation becomes an agent of prosecuting God's curse against the man. The creation doesn't cooperate the way it would have in an unfallen world. And so the man will have to toil. That's how Genesis 3 describes it. Man was given work before the fall. Work is good. Man was made to work. Work before the fall and apart from sin would be utterly and completely enjoyable. But now work becomes toil. It will be difficult for man to eke out an existence, to eke out a living from the fallen creation. It will be difficult for man to eat of the fruits of the earth. See, the woman is cursed primarily with reference to home life because that's her primary sphere. That's her central sphere. The man is cursed primarily with reference to his work life because that's his central sphere. Man labors. Man still labors, but now he labors under the curse. God speaks of thorns and thistles getting in the way. Getting in the way of man's work. It says that... Uh, His face will be filled with sweat as He works with the earth in the now fallen world. And then God finally says to Adam, you will return to the dust from which you were taken. In other words, you will die. For dust, from dust you were taken and to dust you will return. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return in death. That's really, again, what Ash Wednesday is all about. Ash Wednesday is our annual reminder of the curse of death. That we came from dust and we are returning to dust. Death is a kind of decreation. It's the final outworking of sin's curse. Death, as we now know it, is part of the curse. It's the final form the curse takes. Man came from the ground, he will return to the ground in death. It's dust to dust, ashes to ashes. The curse means we will all die. We came from dust, we will return to the dust. And again, if the satanic serpent eats the dust, what does that mean? In some way, perhaps death is the serpent swallowing us up. The serpent swallowing us up in death, devouring us. That's The curse. Again, the giving of the law to Israel intensified this curse and magnified this curse and focused this curse on the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. God gave His people, He gave to the people of Israel, uncleanness laws to teach them about the curse. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 3, the effect of the workings of the law, the work of the law, is to curse, not to bless. Because the people could never do all that the law required. They always fell short of what the law required. And so the curse of the law fell upon them. This curse pronounced in Genesis 3 is focused on Israel and intensified for Israel. But what does God do about it? Because Jesus is a new and greater Adam. And because He is a new and greater Israel. Because He did keep the law at every point, He was able to die as our substitute. He was able to return to dust. To die to be put into the dust of the ground. He was able to die and bear the curse as our substitute. Taking the penalty we deserve. Dying our death. So that we can live eternally. So we can share in the blessings God promised to Abraham the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. He died under the curse to restore the blessings of creation. Jesus bore the curse to reverse the curse. To turn curse into blessing. To make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. What has the curse touched? Genesis 3 shows us it's touched everything. It's touched our our, our deepest sense of identity. So now we feel shame. It's touched our family life, marriage and children. It's touched our work. It touches everything. Jesus came to turn the curse into blessing, to make His blessing flow. As far as the curse is found, which means to make His blessing flow out into every nook and cranny of the creation, every aspect of your life. The curse includes thorns and thistles. Well, since man came from the ground and thorns and thistles also come from the ground, perhaps we're not too far off thinking of thorns and thistles as in some way representing wicked men. In fact, Scripture later on does that. It compares worthless wicked men to brambles and to thorn bushes. But of course, those thorns and thistles also represent all the ways that creation opposes man and refuses to submit to man's rule and does not cooperate with man as he seeks to take dominion. Those thorns represent the curse. But what does Jesus do when He goes to the cross? He wears a crown of thorns. Talk about bearing the curse. Here it is. He bore the curse, the thorns, in order to free us. The thorns of the curse stuck in His brow so that He might deliver us from them. So we could truly sing, as we do again in that song, Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Adam is told, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Again, this tells us work is going to be more difficult in a fallen world. But it also tells us about the work of the new and last. You know, if something's easy, we say, oh, that was no sweat. Okay, we don't get to say that very much because there's not very much in life that comes easy. But if something's easy, we say, oh, that was no sweat. If we want to make something look easy, even though it's not, we say, never let him see a sweat. Even though it's hard, make it look easy. See, what causes sweat? Sweat comes from hard work. It comes from labor and from trial, especially in the heat. It comes from stress. It comes from fear. If you've ever been really afraid, you'll start to break out in a cold sweat. Again, in the Bible, sweat is associated with uncleanness. It's associated with leprosy in the law. Because what leaks out of a man's inside through his skin is unclean because man is unclean on the inside. And so what flows out of him is unclean too under the law. That's how the law taught the people that they were corrupt within. Because everything that comes out of you, that flows out of you, that leaks out of you, is unclean and makes you unclean. This is why the priests were not supposed to sweat when they were on the job. I don't know how they did this, but when the priests were ministering in God's presence, in the tabernacle and in the temple, they were supposed to not sweat. Ezekiel 44 says that the priests were to wear linen garments, linen vestments, because they were not to wear anything that would cause them to sweat. Their vestments were to be lightweight linen, not, say, heavy wool that would make them sweat. But for Jesus as the last Adam, sweating is all part of His work. It's it's part of His curse bearing. He has hard work to do. Jesus never got to say, no sweat. Nor did Jesus try to make it look easy and say, well, I'm not going to let them see me sweat. No, Jesus had hard work to do. The hardest work of all, the work of bearing the curse. And so Luke 22 tells us as He went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray to His Father, He sweat, and His sweat became like huge drops of blood. His toil, His sweaty work, was to undo the work of Adam and to replace curse with blessing. Not an easy thing to do. But he did it anyway. And the result of his work is, as Genesis 3 says, bread. Genesis 3 says, it's through your toil and the sweat of your face that you'll get bread. Jesus' sweat like great drops of blood. Why? To give us bread. Ultimately, we can say the bread of the Eucharist that we enjoy every Sunday. When we eat that bread on the Lord's Day, by faith we are sharing in the benefits Christ won for us. That bread summarizes all the blessings Jesus brings to us. It summarizes for us that curse has been replaced with blessing. That bread is the fruit of His labor, His toil, His curse-bearing work. He did the work, we get the bread. He feeds us this free food. He feeds us Himself. And so the gift of the Eucharist is the antidote to that stolen meal, that stolen fruit that Adam and Eve took in the beginning. They took a meal they had no right to. They took a meal they hadn't worked for or labored for. It was not theirs to take. Jesus gives us free food, freely offered to us, because he has won it. He has purchased it through his sweaty toil and labor. This is what Lent is all about. You know, I say every year, remember, Lent is not about your suffering, it's about Jesus' suffering. Your suffering is a part of it, certainly. And that's why you might do things like fast and that kind of thing. But it's really about Christ's suffering. Lent, above everything else, is about the cross. And everything we do to observe the season of Lent should point us to the cross. Lent reminds us, we pin our hopes to the cross of Christ alone for our salvation. Only the cross can reverse the curse. Only the cross can make blessing flow as far as the curse is found. The cross is our salvation from death and our pattern for life. Everything in Lent is about the cross. The cross is the place where curse is turned into blessing. See, Adam brought the curse on us all by choosing death. Jesus brought blessing on us all also by choosing death, but in a different way. Adam chose death because he rebelled against God. Jesus chose death because he wanted to serve God. Adam chose to serve himself at his tree in the garden. Jesus chose to serve us at his tree of the cross. Adam had delusions of grandeur, delusions of deity even, you might say. In, and those delusions, of course, were, were reduced to dust. Jesus, by contrast, humbled Himself and so won glory for us. He restores the missing glory, the lost glory. He won glory for Himself. He won glory for us by humbling Himself. Adam had a right to nothing but claimed everything. Jesus had a right to everything but made Himself nothing. Adam exalted himself and so he was brought low. Jesus lowered himself and so he was exalted. And just as Adam's fall brought us down, Jesus' exaltation raises us up. You've heard of runaway brides? Well, Adam was a runaway husband. He refused to protect and provide for his bride. He let his bride face the intruder, the satanic serpent, on her own while he just stood back and watched. Jesus didn't run away from the fight. He ran into it. That's what the Garden of Gethsemane is all about. Preparing for the fight. Jesus protects His bride, the church. He fights to rescue her from sin and death and Satan. He gives Himself in sacrificial love that He might have her. Because of Adam's sin, man was sent into exile. Banished from the presence of the Lord. Locked out of the Garden of Eden. The mountain garden sanctuary with cherubim there, with flaming swords to keep them from re-entering. Adam's sin left us down and out, even quite literally down and out, down the mountain and out the gate of the Garden of Eden. But with Jesus, it's up and in. On the cross, Jesus is lifted up from the earth. He is exalted, raised heavenward. And on the cross, He passes through the sword and flame of God's judgment And so He reopens the gates of paradise to us. Paradise is restored through His cross. All that Adam lost and much, much more is gained for us in Christ. He regains what Adam lost and He gives us even more. A surplus. How does He do it? On the cross, He bore the curse. On the cross, He was exiled. On the cross, He was banished. He was banished from the city of Jerusalem, sent outside the city gates. Be crucified. He was separated from his disciples, banished from the community of the disciples who all fled away from him. And he was exiled, banished even from the fellowship of his father. So he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the cry of exile. That is the cry of an accursed one. But his exile means our exodus, his exclusion means our inclusion. His curse is our blessing. And that's our hope. Let's pray together. Father, we do give You thanks for Christ and for His cross. Father, You are so good and so gracious. Even Your death sentences, even when You pronounce curse and woe and judgment, even then You mix in mercy and grace. Even in the midst of Your wrath, You remember mercy. We thank You for the promises of Christ made there, even in Genesis 3, when our first parents fell into sin. We thank You for, in the fullness of time, sending Christ to be our champion, the seed of the woman, to crush the serpent's head and to share that victory with us, to turn curse into blessing. During this Lenten season, Father, help us to especially remember all that Christ suffered, all that He did to fight for us, to redeem us, to deliver us, how He wore and bore the curse for our sakes to bring us blessing. This is our prayer in His name. Amen.